This week on Writers Inc. Most of the time, it starts with location in my books. I've written several standalones before as well. And here I wanted to write this region. I have a house up there as well. It's a beautiful, beautiful region, but it also has this dark history and this melancholy to it. Uh, so I wanted to write that. And then I started searching for, uh, like, what's the stories here? What do I want to tell here? What do I want to place here? What stories? And what stories do the plays want to tell? So it's like an interaction. And I always dig very deep into the location. It's not just a setting that you describe, but it's also part of people. And I mean, it's also about finding the stories there. And even if you just pass, maybe a bump in the road, it's got its own story that makes it like alive for the reader, I think. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Hi, it's Christine Daigle. Patrick O'Donnell. J.P. Reinflush. And I'm J.D. Barker. Welcome to Writer's Inc. Uh, Kevin is not here. And if you all remember last week, he was telling us how his his method of combating winter was living in Texas. He doesn't have to deal with any weather there. Um, he got hit with an ice storm this morning and has no power as of now. So Kev, Kevin is not with us today. So I just wanted to throw that out there just to kind of bust his balls a little bit. Um, I've got a question for you guys. Do any of you have kids? Yes. Yes. No. J, JP is shaking his head. He's like, not, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> um, here's, I, I, I'm struggling with this. So my daughter is five, um, and she's got a, a crazy imagination, which I, I love, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to foster this. She's constantly making up stories and like, they've got, you know, the kids writing books in kindergarten and stuff like that. Um, but there seems to be this weird line where, you know, she is making up things that, you know, necessarily aren't stories like today she went in and um let me preface this a little bit i was unpacking something in our in our gym the other day i got some new gym equipment and i was pulling it out of the box and she was in there kind of playing while i was doing it she grabbed this big piece of plastic and put it over her head and started running around in circles um she wasn't going to suffocate but okay. i didn't want her to understand that you know putting plastic on your head is, is dangerous so i so i told her that you know you, know, you don't want to do that this is one of those things that can make you dead um which is like her little phrase for like you know hard stop on whatever it is she's doing this will make me dead. Um, and I kind of left it at that. And this morning we got an email from her teacher and apparently she's in school today telling kids and teachers that she used to have a, a sister who died from putting a plastic bag over her head when she was two. So, okay. <laughs> obviously this, as far as I know, this isn't true. And I'm pretty sure that couldn't have, you know, slipped by my, my, my attention, you know, here in the house after you know, two years. Um, but I'm trying to figure out how to deal with this because like, I, I, I want her to continue to foster her imagination. I love the fact that she can make stuff like that up. Um, you know, cause you know, obviously I, I do pretty well with making up stories, but at the same time, I don't want her saying stuff like that. So I'm just curious, the other parents out here, um, have you run into that before and like, how do you deal with it? I have a four and a half year old granddaughter. So I'm kind of in that universe right now. And she's got a very vivid imagination as well. And we read a lot of books. You know, I'm a huge believer, you know, read books to your kids, you know, you know, at bedtime, you know, it's perfect or whenever. 
And sometimes they kind of make up stuff to go along with the book or whatever. As long as it's not like a repeat problem, I don't see anything wrong with it. You know, I was, I was researching it a little bit, and apparently four or five years old is where this kind of thing happens. They tend to make up stories that they, oh, yeah. they literally believe are true themselves, you know, to a certain extent. Um, so, yeah, it's just a, a weird line. Yeah. I, actually, this is my son is legendary for getting written up <laughs> in his day planner. I get notes home about the things that he would say. I'm going to frame those probably going to his wedding, but I haven't. It's, <laughs> Please speak to William. He's talking about how he eats stinky worms and like, yeah, <laughs> I'm like, he doesn't eat worms. Like, but you know, and then I would just be like, oh, when you're starting, can you say, is this real or is this pretend? So he'd be like, oh, I want to, oh wait, this is pretend. And then he would just kind of go on and tell his story. But yeah, they do do that. And you get some interesting phone calls from teachers about things they've said in class. <laughs> yeah. So do they grow out of it at some point? I'm guessing yeah. that happens. Yeah. Well, I was Hopefully, always a worse yes. liar. So <laughs> you know, I tell them things like, oh, yeah, I was stuck in traffic, but Superman came and picked me up. So I got home. And I was a worse liar to him than he was. So, you know, you, you kind of like, that's not true. I'm like, OK, but yeah, she she spent about two months pretending she was a dog, too. So, you know, that's kind of gone away. So That's pretty normal. We'll see. My niece yeah. was a cat for a while. Yeah. It is amazing how quickly these things come and go. I mean, it, it, my granddaughter now thinks she's Spider-Man. Before that, it was all about, you know, something else. It just, it just happens. Spider-Man, I get. Like, <laughs> I, I would be Spider-Man <laughs> if you could. But my, my daughter is really big into them, too. There's a Disney show where they've got, um, it's like the kid versions of Spider-Man yep, and, his, and his friends. And like, I have combed, I've combed the internet trying to find like a realistic looking web shooter for kids to play with. And like, you know, I, I, I was looking for this when I was her age and like, nobody has invented one yet. Like, <laughs> there's been plenty of time. Somebody needs to come up with a way to do that. Which is completely off topic. But if anybody knows of a good web shooter out there, you know, shoot me, shoot me a, a link. Um, JP, what's in the news? Yeah. <laughs> I'll hop in now that we're off of the child chat. Uh, so HarperCollins and Workers Union agree to independent mediator. Uh, so about 200 HarperCollins employees have been striking for 60 days now. And last week, the publisher and union said that they would work with an independent mediator to potentially resolve the dispute. Um, the union chair believes that the 200 literary agents who have pledged to not submit new work to HarperCollins uh, appears to be having an effect. And meanwhile, HarperCollins uh, just announced cost cutting that includes 5% reduction in the workforce in North America. Wow. Um, and and I, I stopped updating my little ticker. Um, but according to the news thing here, it's, we're 60 days in, I think, at this point. It was November, I think, when when this all started. Um, mm. it, honestly, it, it, it's good to see movement on, in one front or another. Um, the problem with, with strikes that last this long is exactly what we're seeing here. The company you know, realizes that they can get by on certain areas with less staffing. They start seeing where they can make cuts and where they can't. And, you know, they, they use the, the opportunity to streamline, which is going to hurt a lot of people. I think a lot of people are going to lose jobs over this. Um, uh, kudos to the agents who have, have not submitted to HarperCollins. I mean, there's not a whole lot of publishers out there right now that they can submit to at, at that top tier level. Um, so to just take one of them off the table, that that's that's a difficult thing to do, not only from the agent standpoint, but also the author standpoint. Um so hopefully this means that they're going to get it resolved soon. Yeah, I've spent most of my adult life in unions and mediation is usually the last thing you want to do. You know, you try to resolve it before then because it's extremely expensive. You know, you're subpoenaing witnesses. There's all kinds of research because when you go to mediation, 
usually a mediator is a retired judge or a judge doing it on the side. And you have to present your case. And you can't just say, well, this isn't fair. Or I feel like when he does, you know, whatever. You know, you have to say, you have to have comparables. Okay, you know, writers in this, you know, atmosphere is are doing this and they're getting compensated with that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You have to be able to prove your point. And that costs a lot of money. It, it does, but it, you know, it, it is a step forward. I had to do a lot right. of mediations when I worked in the financial industry. I was a chief compliance officer for a brokerage firm. So mediation was basically our step before the next one, which is arbitration, um, which is essentially a court case. Uh, and, you know, every, both parties walk into a mediation, I think, hoping that something's going to come out of it. You know, a judge kind of bounces back and forth. Usually nobody is happy at the end of the mediation. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I've seen a lot of them get solved at that point. You know, everybody's yes. got to give and take a little bit and, you know, it causes that movement. So hopefully we'll, we'll see them, you know, finalize this thing. Definitely. Uh, next up uh, is the American Booksellers Association is starting to link to bookshop.org. Uh, so with this one in March, the American Booksellers Association is going to start li linking um, to Bookshop instead of IndieBound. Uh, they're hoping that it will help eliminate customer confusion, and then it will improve some data channels, uh, convert more customers, and generate more revenue for booksellers. Um, it also notes uh, many store credit uh, stores credit Bookshop.org with their survival during the pandemic, uh, and that it could potentially generate 15 times more revenue for those booksellers. Uh, I found this really interesting personally because uh, I've been supporting a local indie bookstore uh, who has been trying to get their shop onto bookshop.org. And once they got it on there, I kind of got to see what that platform looked like uh, from a customer standpoint. Um, it is, a, in my opinion, a pretty good alternative to something like Amazon as a um, if you want to support local indie bookstores. Yeah, I, I love I love it. Um, I mean, for those that, that aren't actually familiar with how these things work, uh, IndieBound has been around forever. Um, and Bookshop.org is, is fairly new. It was basically an upstart that came out of uh, COVID. Um, both of them basically feature the same stores. If you were to go down their list and search by you know particular area, it's going to list the independent bookstores in that area. The difference is Bookshop.org gives a percentage of the sales back to the, the local bookstores. Um, and yeah, that, that really kept them going through the, the pandemic. A lot of people would have had to shutter their doors. Um, I've got no idea who organized IndieBound, who owns that, if there's you know, a profit center behind that, if it's a nonprofit, I've got no clue. Um, but the way bookshop.org is, is organized, um, you know, they, they are definitely taking care of the locals. Definitely. All right. As a last topic, and credit all these topics to the hot sheet from Jane Friedman, uh, last one is ACX, ACX announces reduced prices for audiobooks. So Audible is reducing its prices on titles. Uh, this includes ACX titles across the site. Um, the hot sheet anticipates these price reductions will lead to increased sales overall. And um, majority of Audible content is purchased with a credit. So average royalty per unit uh, should remain steady. And as a note, for those that don't know, authors can't control pricing of their audiobooks when selling through ACX. Um, and there's been this whole hubbub with um, ACX potentially being accused of stealing their earnings through incorrectly calculating royalties, um, et cetera, with the whole return policy that happened back in 2020. Um, so authors who wish to control their audiobook uh, prices should consider another distributor like Fine Voices. But I'm curious on what you guys' thoughts are on this. 
Do you all have um, the only audio book that I actually own their rights to is Forsaken. Um, that one was in ACX for the longest time and I pulled it out and I put it over at Findaway and basically went wide with it. Um, about the same time as what JP just mentioned when they, they you know, start crediting people for returns. Um, that whole thing really blew up. I mean, basically people were, were buying audiobooks, they were listening to the entire audiobook, and then they were returning it to get their one credit back so they could do the same thing all over again with another audiobook. Um, from the Audible's, you know, standpoint, that, you know, was fantastic as far as they were concerned. It didn't make any difference um, because they had that, that user there. Um, but the authors didn't see the, the sales from that. Um, I don't know that they ever actually came to a resolution on that. I know there was a proposal out there, you know, where like if somebody listened to a certain percentage of the book, then they wouldn't be able to return it. That that kind of thing, but I don't know that they actually did anything, and I haven't had an ACS uh, statement that I've looked at close enough to, to see. Um, this this is interesting, though, but the, the overall story. I, I think what's going on here is this is Audible and ACX basically trying to come up with ways to combat Spotify and these other services that are coming out with the the all you can eat type service. Uh, I mean. It, Yes, users buy books using a credit, um, but as far as I know, that credit transfers into a dollar amount, and that dollar amount is what's used to create our actual compensation on our royalties. So if they're lowering that dollar amount, yeah, sure, the person is still paying one credit, but it's being, you know, it's basically being exchanged for a lower dollar amount that that we're gonna see. Um, that may increase sales. I don't. I don't know. I mean, like I, I, I use I use one credit a month through through Audible. Um, it's very rare that I actually have to go out there and get a second audio book. Um, I've never really considered the price as a, a thing. Um, when I look at that, I know a lot of people do. I know a lot of people look at the length. If it's a thirty hour audio book, a lot of people will take that over a six hour audio book because they're basically the same price. Um, but th this whole thing is just them, from my eyes anyway, trying to streamline what's happening in the, the other you know, audio book providers that are coming out of the woodwork. Yeah. And the concern, though, would be for indie authors, right, who are putting that money up front. They're putting thousands of dollars up front to make these audio books. And the margins are so slim because they often have to price lower to be competitive with trad. So lowering those prices and not having control, that's going to be a real problem for indie authors. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm slightly interested if any of the statements from um, Brandon Sanderson could have impacted this, because if anyone remembers, Brandon Sanderson had this whole Kickstarter where he got over $20 million, I think it was the highest raised Kickstarter, and it was because he wrote four secret novels. Uh, and he announced when he released the audiobooks um, for the first one, he wasn't going to go through Audible. He went through every other source but Audible, and he left a very long response as to like, the fact that, in his opinion, Audible is unconscionable with the uh, indie author pay rates. And so I'm curious, because that was a month ago where that was stated before he released it, if this is kind of a, a potential response to that. It, it could be. Um, I think his final tally on that Kickstarter was $40 million. I, I know it's the largest Kickstarter they've ever funded. It's it's ridiculous. Um, and, I, and I know he also said that he was going to keep them out of Audible for one year. Um, and then, you know, probably put them in there. Um, I'm, I'm sure that that probably made some type of difference. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to combat this. You know, for listeners, if you're not listening to Joanna Penn, you know, check out her show. She talks about this quite a bit. Um, she's been exploring direct sales, you know, on a lot of these different things, ebook, print and, and audio, because um, it's it's basically at that point. You know, somebody's going to if they're interested in your book, somebody you know may either go to Amazon directly today or they might just go to Google and type in your name and find you um, if they tend to use Google or a search engine or some other way to, to get to you, there's no reason at all for you not to have some type of direct sale page where you can you know, make more money. And I think that is a mindset shift that, that's going to happen over time. I, I think it's going to become easier and easier to find authors if you've got a presence out there and, and why not sell direct and, and try to recoup some of these losses. 
Yeah, and then you can retarget the same readers too. You have that data, right, where it's very difficult from other platforms to know who your audience is. So definitely, you know, if you're big enough to do direct sales, you should be doing direct sales. Well, awesome. Well, let's get on to some business before we get to our interview. So we want to give out a shout out to our wonderful sponsor, Later Press. Later Press is a platform built to help authors declare independence. It lets authors create digital books and sell them directly to readers through a branded website. Later Press is free to publish on and doesn't take any commission on direct sales. It's one of the most effective ways readers can directly support authors they love. Get started today at laterpress.com. So, J.D., who's up this week? This week, we've got Tuva Alsterdahl. She's one of Sweden's most renowned suspense authors. Her latest novel is called You Will Never Be Found and released in January. Here she is, Tuva. So you have a new book, You Will Never Be Found, the second book in the High Coast series. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Yeah. As you say, it's the second one in the series. It takes place up north in Sweden. And, uh, well, we continue to f- follow my heroine, Eira Shadin, who is a like, police assistant uh, and also like signed up to work for uh, the crime investigation unit. I don't know if I get the terms right here in English. but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, so, I mean, it's it's a, it's a second book in the series, but you can read it. You can start with reading that one, even though you might get more out of it if you read the first part that we know you remember. Yeah, but it's a standalone. Yeah, I read it. Yeah. Definitely. I didn't read the first one, so you don't need to read okay, the first okay. one to, uh, anyway. yeah, to get then lots of... Yeah, it was it great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this series has been called Nordic Noir at its best. And I'm mm. curious, what in your opinion makes something Nordic Noir? How is it different from, say, American Noir? Oh, wow. Uh, well, I think if you should define it, I mean... Uh, the Nordic Noir, I mean, the, this uh, genre in Sweden is so huge now. So we get all kind of different, you know, even Americans you would recognize, like maybe uh, lots of uh, things from like the American tradition as well. But if the typical Nordic Noir, it's uh, it's very close to nature. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's often very dark, I think, a bit melancholic. And uh, it, it's it all... It, Usually it also deals with like topics of society. It's not so much, it could be psychological, of course, but it's not so much a psychological thriller. It's more like, uh, you know, deals with issues in society, contemporary uh, discussions, even though it often goes back to history as well. Uh, Yeah, I think it's something like that. And and you always got the nature. I mean, yeah. You're sitting in Canada, you know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. Large woods and rivers and lakes and close to the sea. In nature, it's always like, uh, yeah, like also main character, at least in my book. Exactly. You know, I want to ask you a little bit about that because there are a lot of forgotten and changing places in the book. So I'm curious how the history of ghosts of Sweden show up as characters or moods in your novel. Ah, the ghosts of Sweden. Yeah. I mean, this place where by the high coast, um, by this river valley, that it it's it's a very important place in Swedish history because it was it used to be like the center of the wood industry. That I mean, it was big part of the success of Sweden, of the wealth welfare in Sweden, uh, these large wood industries in the uh, last centuries. And and uh, 
I mean, now it's all gone, but there were some huge strikes and conflicts during the, during the last century. <clears throat> and uh, it, we have one, it was one occasion when the military actually was brought in and shot at the striking workers and uh, five people were killed. And I named one of my, my main characters after a girl who was killed that day, uh, Eira. Uh, she was just standing, standing beside watching the demonstration go by. And uh, I mean, this was a very, very important uh, event in Swedish history. It was like, um, you know, when it all started, this, uh, the things you know about Sweden, the compromise, the sitting down and talk through things and get along and, you know, no more like uh, internal warfare. Uh, and that was like the start of it. Yeah, I say that seems very anti like everything you think about Sweden, like Sweden is shooting workers for protesting is not yeah. the first thing that would come to my mind. No, no, yeah. we actually stopped that in 1931. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <clears throat> but that was here. And it has also this has also like, uh, I mean, for the region, for the locals, it's of course, it's a major event that like hasn't really lost its grip on people. And also it all those wood industries that were so huge, they have left now, of course. There's just a few left, but I mean, they don't employ any people no more. It's like just machines. So um, they're also living like in the phantom pains of this uh, very, very prosperous era. And now it's more like unemployment and left behind. And even the state has left this region behind a lot and so on. Yeah. So that's the setting of it. Yeah, and you can really feel that in the book. So I'm curious, do you you setting intentionally as a character? Is that something that you think about when you're writing? I, um, most of the time, it starts with location in my books. I've written several standalones before as well. And here I wanted to write this region. I have a house up there as well. It's a beautiful, beautiful region, but it also had this dark history and this melancholy to it. Uh, so I wanted to write that. And then I started searching for, uh, like, what's the stories here? What do I want to tell here? What do I want to place here? What stories? And what stories do the plays want to tell? <laughs> it's like, <clears throat> and then we, we like interact. Oh, God, my throat. <laughs> Sorry. No worries. So it's like an interaction. And I always dig very deep into the location. It's not just a setting that you describe, but it's also part of people. And I mean, it's also about finding the stories there. And even if you just pass, maybe a bump in the road, it's got its own story yeah. that makes it like alive for the reader, I think. That's really interesting. So how do you go about doing that, about finding the soul of the place that you're going to write about? Oh, I read a lot. Here I had been like, uh, I had been there for like 20 years, in, mostly in the summertime with my kids and so on. So I knew quite a lot about it um, compared to the place I've written about before. Uh, so I knew quite a lot, but uh, still there were, there's a lot, lot more. There's lots more to know. And I talked a lot. I read a lot. Of course, I read everything that I can find about the place that I'm writing about, even, uh, you know, novels, poetry. There were a lot of like great poets there, like 50 years ago. And, uh, and also about facts and everything. And I talked to a lot of people. That's, I mean, that's the most important thing to just find people's stories. So I walk around with those people who might have lived there for like 80 years or something and could tell them about what it looked like during their childhood, who lived in that house and who lived in that. Because all that are like part of people people's memory of the place. And I wanted to place my main character is she's born and brought up there and has this long memory that you have if you have lived in a small place like that. 
in, in generations. Because she, I mean, she remembers what her grandparents told her, and they remember what their grandparents told them. So you carry like around this very, very deep memory. So that's like also part of it that I wanted to like, yeah. I'm getting the collective memory of the place. That's yeah, kind of that. yeah. So then you have to talk to people because lots of it aren't written down. Yeah. So I'm curious, in your endnotes, you talk about getting rides when you are too tired to bicycle to do your research. Do you yeah. think doing research that way by bicycle gives you a richer experience when you're creating atmosphere? Well, it's mostly about not having a driver's license. <laughs> 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 so yeah i do a lot of research by bike or by bus or by train and uh but up there there are not that many trains and buses and uh also it's i mean it's very hilly it's like this i riding around by bike is not i've done that in like central europe and then it's good to like bike around but here it's like a little bit not the landscape for it yeah no so that's why <laughs> but okay. also, if you, if you go by bicycle, of course, you get more to it. You get the yeah. smells and you get like to see things. You can stop at certain places. And so it's a good way if it's, you know. Yeah, I, I figure you must see like a lot more of, you know, you write about forests and earth cellars. And it, it yeah. seems like bicycle would be a great way to kind of just really absorb all of that yeah. Um, yeah, countryside. It and it's yeah. also really good to go by myself because you see a lot more. But on the other hand, I usually go around with people. I mean, people who feels like who wants to drive me around, and then I can get the, their stories as well. So that's also quite good. Nice. Okay, I really want to ask about this without giving too much away. But do you think um, that there's anything that makes women killers different than men who kill? Motivations, past experiences, something else? I think there are. I mean, there are so many motives of killing. I know. I, 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 I actually, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I think it's interesting to like. Uh, I don't like the cliches of the genre. There are lots of cliches in this genre, and uh, I mean, I mean, I don't like serial killers who like keep on killing young girls because a young girl was treated him badly. Mm -hmm. 40 years ago or something. I don't know why. Because um, I want it to be like a more emotional, more like the motive of the murder is uh, that it's something that I could, can identify with. Uh, not that I would do it, but the feelings that like causes it, I like to be something I can identify with. And I like to like twist the, those cliches around. Because I mean, this book starts uh, when they find uh Middle-aged man dead in one of those deserted houses, locked into the basement, and he actually has starved to death. And uh, I mean, locked up and disappeared young girls are all over the Chang'er. But this mm -hmm. actually is a bit more unusual. And I liked to just play with that, see what happened if I changed the roles totally. And uh, actually, it came out a bit more scary, I think, because when you, when the person who used to have like power at least over his own life uh are deprived of it uh and uh you know like locked up and can't do anything it's like not so if it's a young girl i mean she's a victim from the very start when she starts walking on that dark road in the beginning of the book you know that she's a victim and she will be a victim all through the story and this makes it a bit more interesting i think 
that's that's part of writing this book. So, but I'm also curious, do you think there are double standards for writing uh, male versus female detectives? Do you need to handle things like sex and violence differently to make it more palatable for readers? Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, of course it diff- it's different, but I also, I like very much too. It's also about, you know, get around the cliches um, that I didn't, I didn't want this. It's a female detective who's the main character. Uh, I didn't want her to like have trouble with those male bosses at work who doesn't want a woman to, you know, be a police officer. I think that that's a bit um, not so modern because, I mean, they don't have that problem in the Swedish police anymore. There are loads of female bosses and or everyone I talk to almost when I like searching for the boss at violent crimes in this area, it's a woman. And when she quits because she's going to have another child, it's another woman. <laughs> so, uh, so I didn't want those conflicts. Uh, and I also think that um, I like when when I write male characters to give them female, like uh, to really like identify with them emotionally so that maybe I give them the male characters, like female emotions and so on. What do you think is female emotions? I mean, they got them too, even though they maybe hide them. <laughs> Uh, and the same with a female character that I, I mean, she's not, she's a tough in a way. She's also vulnerable, of course, mm-hmm. as we are, if we're human beings. But she's not like, uh, she's not a very girly. Um, it's also that she, I mean, she handles things in her family. In my family, it's always been the women who, are, who like handles things and like make the make the family survive according to economy and everything and have things in order and so on. Um, so I think to me, my family is from up north, even further up north. And we are rather used to like women being very like, I bet you are in Canada as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. Northern America. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I think I, uh, oh, yeah, I don't know if that was an answer to your question. <laughs> I think it was. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, I was also curious, you have some exploration of forgetting whether through Alzheimer's or alcohol hmm. or just leaving your life behind. How do you use memory and memory blocks, whether intentional or not in your characters to enhance your writing? Hmm. I think, uh, I think almost in all my books and especially in these ones in this series are about memory and oblivion. Uh, I think, I mean, it's so great topics for the crime story because so much is about what you remember and that you remember things differently. And what if, I mean, you have, you have memories, for example, of your childhood, which happens to Aira a lot. She has memories of a childhood that turns out not to be what she thought it was. Because, I mean, she remembers what people told her and so on. And maybe it was totally different. I mean, she has problems with a brother, too, who is in this book in jail for a murder he actually did not commit. And um, so she reveals things all, all the time, both in the, like, in the, in the place and in the investigation, but also in her own life and in her own family. Uh, and of course, my mother suffered from, from dementia. So I've discovered that I use, I've used that a number of times actually, because it's, it's something that you never, uh, you never ready with it. I and mean, you haven't, it's lots to deal with when you have experienced it yourself. And, uh, and it's also, of course, uh, interesting thing 
in a crime story. If a person is suffering from dementia and has forgotten things, uh, I mean, does she remember or not? Or do you, you know, you know where the, the memories are disappearing and everything? I think it's really, really, really interesting to dig into those topics. Yeah, I agree. Um, so you were in a previous life, a psychiatric nurse. And I know the hospital you worked in has appeared in a previous book. How else has your experience with people in mental health crises influenced your work? I think the main thing, I was rather young when I worked. It was like my after high school first job. Uh, and uh, But I worked there several years. And it was those very large former mental psychiatric institutions that we really don't have anymore. <clears throat> I closed them down in Sweden in the 1990s, and I guess most countries. Uh, but uh, I think the most important thing that I learned there, and that has like shaped me both as a person and as a writer, is um, to realize when you walk this line of, I mean, those people who were locked up in this facility, I mean, we are talking one flew over the coconut <laughs> thing. Uh, uh, it was it was a really tough place, you know. Uh, they had stopped lobotomy when I worked there, but it was like in previous years, it was definitely there. There, uh, so the people who were locked up there, most some of them had been there like all their lives almost, and I mean they were definitely not the people you meet on the street, otherwise or in your normal life. Uh, but to like to meet them and to deal with them and to see that these they are also human beings and to walk that thin line between. Um, looking at them as human beings or something else or the other. That, I think, was really shaped me because you had to take like that position that to be on their side. And uh, I think I have kept on being on their side, like all my life. Yeah. And in my That's writing too, I hope, to make every person that I put into my novels, I should like be fair to. I should make them like real persons, even though they might look strange or whatever. They are all real person and characters with like all the range of emotions and everything. Yeah, they're all human and yeah, you know, we're all the same in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't have those really, you know, psychopaths. I don't really put in my maybe persons can like go over the line, but there's some reason for it. they weren't born evil or something in my books. <laughs> right. That makes complete sense. Um, I'm curious, how do you use real crime cases in your research when you're constructing fictional crimes? I have to think now, this book, I didn't do that as much. The previous one in the series actually was based on, on a couple of real crimes in Sweden. Um, some really like, it was like a group rape, gang rape in the 1980s. And uh, also in the early, in the 90s. Uh, it was this topic with uh, that also it also deals with a bit in this book as well. But it was like the main story in the first book uh, that um, in the 90s, there was an idea that uh, children or even grown ups who have committed a, a murder could forget it. That you have those hidden crimes, hidden memories that uh, you could like in therapy start to confess and so on. And uh, we had some uh, cases in Sweden where very, very young children were made to confess that they had yeah. done awful things. And and it was not only sweet. I mean, you had it in... Yeah, yeah those well. false yeah. memories yeah. and then... Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. False memories. 
Mm-hmm. So that's and the main, that's also topical memory. Yeah. Uh, so that was really based on that. So then I dig into rather deep in all those, you know, in how the interrogations with the children went and so on. Um, this book is actually more of a fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> so it depends on the story. It depends on the story. Yeah, that is interesting, though, that phenomenon of um, how people can confess to things they didn't do under false pressure and false yeah. suggestions. So that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. And what do you do? Are you sure that what you remember is the truth or might it be like some or what happens when you discover that what you remember is not the truth, even if you have confessed to a crime or for like the main character that she thought that this was a perpetrator that she meets on the street 23 years later and so on. Yeah. Yeah. That, I think it's very interesting. It is. Um, I'm curious if you have any tips for engaging readers in your story in a way that makes them feel as if they're solving the crime along with the detective. Oh, I have to think how you do it. I think that's one of the most interesting things with writing in this genre that you have to engage the reader to be like part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, even if you write another novel, of course, the reader should be like engaged into it, but not maybe, maybe not to solve the crime. It's And uh, that's so tricky because, I mean, you have to reveal things to have them make the reader go along and feel smart, but you can't reveal too much so that the reader is too, f- I mean, way ahead the main character because then it doesn't work. I don't really know how you do it. I mean, the best tip is to just do it, I think, and have someone to read it and see if, if it works. That's I great. Heard, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, see if they, if they can, like, uh, people know on page 25 who's the murder, then you have to do something about it. I think that's the best way of doing it. Like and that. crime readers are really smart. I mean, those people who read a lot of crime novels, they get so smart. So you have to be better and better and better all the time because, yeah. Yeah. So just a balance between making them not feel like they have no clue what's going on, but also not giving everything away and using readers to kind of see if you hit that point. Yeah. So, of course, I think it's a bit lot about having them engage in one story and make that real thing like lingering beside a bit so that you don't go like into that but it's there somewhere you can just feel feel it or see a glimpse of it but you are so engaged in what's going to happen to her now so that you might not really see it but when you find the solution when you come to the solution you know you have you should have seen it yeah all right i just want to switch directions because i have to ask this question you bought Alfred Nobel's laboratory and ran a cabaret out of it. Yeah, <laughs> Can did. you tell me about that? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's one of the more crazy things I've done in my life. It wasn't really a good idea because I mean, it was financially totally crazy. <clears throat> yeah, it was actually this house. It's a, it's a very beautiful park in the south of Stockholm where Alfred Nobel, when he had started to exper- experiment with dynamite, he actually, I mean, blew up his own house here in the inner city. And actually his brother died. So he had to move that out of the city. So that's a beautiful, beautiful park with those old houses. And this was the laboratory. And uh, it, this was the early, I think it was late 1999 or something. I think it was. And uh, this, the town sold this house because it was so run down and they wanted to sell it to some cultural thing. And so I just, we wrote down this idea about a cabaret house. I love cabaret. Yeah. Since I saw cabaret for the first time in the film. 
<clears throat> I just love it. And so, so I got that idea down and we managed to buy it. And then we had to renovate it because, I mean, it was like, mm-hmm. yeah, earth floor and everything. It was no, you know, no uh, water, you know, and nothing. So it was, it was rather tough. We had no money and we should at the same time, like work, me and my former husband. Maybe that's why he's my former husband at the moment. <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> I can't recommend that. <laughs> While having like a baby at the same time. Oh boy. Yeah. But we, we managed to, we managed to like get to have some cabaret shows there. And then I discovered that I was pregnant with twins. And then we realized, no, we can't do this. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Not now I have to earn some more money in some how to do it somewhere, someplace else, sometime maybe. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you got some shows and hopefully those were a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, this it was a lot of fun, actually, and a lot of hard work. <laughs> okay, I have uh, one final question. If you could offer one piece of advice to new and aspiring authors, what would it be? Uh, to believe in your idea, not to look at others. Like to be, believe in what you think and what you like feel yourself, what you have inside you. Um, to look at others is a bad idea because then you will just write the same books as everyone else does. Uh, and also to get help and to work, to work, to put down the work that it takes because that's the toughest the toughest thing with it. Um, lots of people get great ideas and write 30 pages, but to go the distance, it takes so much work. So just be prepared to do that and don't like believe that it would be easy. And also to get help, maybe not from your mother or <laughs> some very, very, very nice friend that will say that, oh, it's a good, oh, I love this. You're so talented. But to go to those friends who can say, well, oh, something here, but you should really do, you know, you can really be honest. And so I've had some of those friends through my journey, and it's uh, so great. Those who just say how it is. So find good friends. and. Be prepared to do all the hard work. <laughs> okay, so Tuva has really rich and moody atmosphere in her books. I'm curious if any of you use setting as a character and what that looks like for you. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think the location should always be a, a character. Um, we've talked about this before, you know, in particular the places, you know, like New Orleans, you know, for example, has, you know, such an incredible look and feel. And if you go there, it's got a smell, you know, which, which changes, you know, depending on the time of day that you happen to be wandering down the street. Um, but like all of those things can be part of your story and they, they should be. It just, those are the things that draw that reader in and make them feel like they're actually standing there yeah you know i remember reading fourth monkey jd and that's in chicago and that's you know where i'm from originally and it brought back memories you know it it did spark some memories in my brain and the books that i the series that i'm writing right now are in milwaukee where i spent 25 years being a cop so i think you're doing it even unconsciously you know just doing it and you don't even realize that you're trying to like implant that into your reader's brain or trying to really flush that forward because it's just a part of you. Oh, yeah. Chicago is a place that's very familiar to me. I've been there a bunch of times. I, I grew up outside of Chicago as a kid and we used to take the train in all the time. So I've, I've seen that city quite a bit. Um, but whenever I research a book, I, I try to research the, the city itself. So with Chicago, I found underground tunnels that they used for bootlegging back in the day um, that are currently owned by the telephone company. They use them to run cables. Um, they still to this day actually cool a couple of the movie theaters through those tunnels because the, the air coming out of them is much colder than the actual air. It's like natural air conditioning. Oh. 
Oh, wow. um, so I try to find little little things like that that people may or may not know, but just kind of grounds the the story and just you know makes them feel like they're you know they're learning something, but also that they're they're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in one of my uh, serials that I work on with uh, Jeff Elkins we have it set in a small town and it's conveniently like, it's not the same town I grew up in, but it is almost a reflection of that. And uh, so being able to pull from those experiences and create a small town that I felt was very lived in um, is, is really what I like to do when create those kind of atmospheres. Yeah. I think about weather a lot and, you know, I think it's a trick. I don't think readers really notice it. Um, I was just recently like rethinking about the movie seven and like all the time it's raining and everything is like green and gray and really how you can use atmosphere to set mood and tone and, you know, give whatever kind of feeling you want to your work. Seven is a great example of that. Yeah. I mean, we Just on seven, like, do any of you know what city that actually is? I can't recall. No. Yeah, because they, they don't actually say. They, they purposely don't say what, what city it is. They make it look like any city USA, um, which which I thought was unique. Um, in that movie, it's also raining pretty much in, in every scene. Um, so, you know, they're, they're bringing the weather in. I'm sorry, Patrick, what were you going to say? No, I, perfect example is Blade Runner. I don't think it ever stopped raining. I couldn't imagine that movie like all bright and sunny and <laughs> shiny. It would just be a totally different movie. You know, that's really funny because I live right next to Detroit and my my husband is always like, oh, Detroit, beautiful in the summer when the weather's nice and RoboCop in the winter. And it's so true. <laughs> RoboCop. Um, she had brought up uh, you know, that she doesn't have a driver's license, first of all, which I can't even phantom. But the, the idea of riding a bike through the locations that she's going to um, write about, um, you know, and if you think about it, you know, like if. if yeah, I've, I've driven. I do a lot of road trips. I hate flying, so I hop in my car whenever I get a chance to, to go somewhere. Uh, you know, you miss a lot of stuff when you're in a car. You know, versus being on a bike for sure. I mean, think about the differences there. And then I, you know, daily I go for a run. You know, through through my island that I live on, and like I, I can guarantee I see a lot more of the island simply because I'm on foot. Um, this is something I think a lot of authors should actually try. You know, visit some of the the places they plan to write about in their book if you can, um, and try to visit it on foot. Try to actually walk these places, not just drive through. Room and not just do the Google search, but just try to get an actual feel for the the location. Yeah, you know that's kind of a European thing, though. Too, you know, they walk and they bicycle a lot more than we do. We're spoiled. You know, what an average American household has two point whatever cars probably in the garage. If you live in a heavily, a densely populated area in an, like Chicago or New York. You might have one car and it's kind of a liability to have one where you rely on public transportation. You know, my grandpa never had a driver's license, nor my grandma. You know, they never did. And my, when we were like little kids in Chicago, there was one car. We didn't. My mom didn't get a driver's license till she was like in her mid 30s when we moved out of the city into the suburbs. And she was crying her eyes out. She said, I don't want to learn how to drive a car. She was scared of them. Well, that, that's a really good point, though. You're kind of emphasizing what we're talking about here, because, you know, if, let's say you're writing about New York City, um, you know, Manhattan. You know, if, if you've never as an author, if you want to use Manhattan as a setting, you've never been there. You know, you, you might give that character a car because you just don't know any better, you know, versus somebody who has lived there and realizes having a car is a huge pain in the ass in any major yep. city because you have to either you know buy or rent a parking space or a garage or find someplace to store it. You know, that's an hour away. Like having a car is a huge pain in the booty if, if you live in one of those cities. And for the most part, you know, residents don't want any part of it. Um, but if you're an author and you're living in, you know, the middle of 
Wisconsin on a dairy farm where you've got 20 acres. And, you know, the idea of somebody not having a car seems seems off. So, like, you really have to approach your story from all these different angles and make sure you're in the character's head and their and their locations and their their lifestyle before you, you, you know, really hit the go button. That would be a pickup truck. <laughs> It would be. For the dairy yeah. farmer, that, that would be a pickup. Yeah. You know, what I thought was really interesting uh, was when Tuva was talking about when she was getting rides from local people, is just talking to them about their stories and like stories of generations and using them in, in her books. Have you... Um, done that like talk to people to get lived experience to put in your books i i used to volunteer at a retirement center um and i would talk to a lot oh. of the older people there and they they will gladly tell you their life stories and where they've been and and just how things have changed and, and to me that that information is is priceless um you know I, I think everybody should try to do that every once in a while yeah that's a great idea if you can and if you have the inclination be a bartender i i sold cars before i was a cop and in the wintertime nobody's buying cars you know, that's what a sociology degree will get you. But <laughs> what happened was, it's okay, I got to make some money. So I bartended and you hear some great stories and you just get some regular Joe jobs, you know, drive an Uber, you know, be a bartender, you know, be in retail for a little bit. It, it sucks, but you you will have some good stories. And then I had 25 years of seeing all of the craziness, you know, like firsthand. And just there's no way to replace that. She she brought up something else um, that I think a lot of people tend to gloss over, and that's the difference between male and female characters in general. Um, you know, you, you can take any particular, you know, I, I just watched Basic Instinct with my wife, you know, it's a really old movie at this point. Um, but if you take the Michael Douglas character and you substitute him for a, a woman, you know, everything, the entire story is different. You know, like the things that he's saying would be perceived in a different way. His actions would be perceived in a different way. Um, when I wrote Caller's Game, my lead character is a female and she's very much like a Howard Stern. And, and you know, honestly, like it's difficult to write a strong willed female character that doesn't come off, you know, in a certain certain way. Um, and but the language and the dialogue, everything could be identical as to what you would use for a male character. And, you know, a reader perceives that differently. Um, do you guys run into that at all? Well, you know, when I was reading her book, that was something that I was just like, wow, this this female detective sleeps with a lot of people. And I just kind of had to, like, <laughs> check myself on that. And I'm like, why does that matter if this was a man when I have even thought about that? Um, which is why I wanted to ask her, you know, uh, does it bother readers? Like, if you have a female that is as violent or as uh, sexually promiscuous as a man, is that something you need to check? Or is that something we should be challenging but i think it's really interesting i think it makes it interesting it, it does the, the lines are getting a little blurrier i think as the years go by um but it but it's definitely there and just throwing this out there there are websites where you can take text that you've just written you know and it'll tell you whether it's written from a male uh, point of view or a female point of view um based on word choice because word choice uh, yeah like the, all of that stuff is actually different too and a lot of us don't realize that um it's more of a subconscious thing but there's websites that can tear that apart and tell you whether or not it is uh, have you any of you pulled stories from headlines before? Have you tried doing that, like combing the newspaper and looking for, you know, this is my next book? No. Uh, for me, it's just uh, I have, you know, a brain full of 25, 25 years of, like, homicides in different cases. You know, the funny stuff, the bad stuff, the whatever stuff. So, no, nah, not really. I think I have pulled from, like, you know, a lot of times from science headlines or something new or cool is, like, I'll try and incorporate that technology or to be a little bit you know, near future and ahead of the curve. So I do use it in that way for sure. Yeah, I've, I've tried doing it. Um, but what I, what I tend to find, especially if you're writing crime thrillers, is most real life criminals just aren't that bright. 
you know, not to the extent that they need to be to, to carry a novel. <laughs> yeah. So it, it loses it. I, I think after a while, like I, I've, I've yet to find a, a story that says, holy cow, I need to write that as a book. Um, those stories are out there, but you know, there's maybe one every five or 10 years and, and somebody's already, you know, grabbed it and, and ran with it. One thing I really liked about your interview, Christine, was she was talking about motivations for women killers, you know, for a female killer compared to a man. Yeah. It's like, Oh, this is interesting. Yeah. And you know where I kind of got that uh, question from, cause I was watching that. I am a killer on Netflix. I came out with <laughs> season four and they always run the stats that, you know, the women who kill are only 10%. And I'm like, well, why mm-hmm. is that? Like, why is it different? What's the different in motivations or I don't know, maybe women are just smarter and don't get caught, but yeah. So I was just interested <laughs> in those stats. <laughs> well, you know what, when it comes to killing, yeah, it is mostly men that are doing the killing and most of the time they're killing other men. You know, I was looking at the stats because I thought about that question. I was looking, it's like 80% of their victims are other men. And when I was on the job, you know, it's like, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out, you know, follow the greed, jealousy, rage, booze, drugs, romance. And yeah, that, that's where you go. But I had some very memorable homicides with a female killing, like, just, wow. You know, you're shaking your head like, and I shouldn't, but, you know, it's like just a natural reaction. It's like, she did all this. It's like, wow, this is crazy. I've got a book with with Patterson that we wrote called Death of the Black Widow, um, where we actually went through and we found some real Black Widow killers, you know, over over the years, real female serial killers. And and honestly, they are more frightening to me than the, the men ever are because the crimes that they commit, the way they commit them are extremely well thought out and calculated. Um, a lot of times they're financially motivated. Um, there, there's a lot more going on there than there are with the, the male side of it. Uh, honestly, most male serial killers are sexually driven and it's more of an instinctual animalistic kind of thing. Um, but the, the female ones, they, they will scare the piss out of you. If you get a chance, go on Google and, and do a little research on that. But there, there's by far, there, there are a lot of differences between the two. Yeah. And that's interesting, you know, because um, I was just going to say at my job, I I have to do um, violent threat risk assessments. uh, And, you know, a lot of the time it's like, well, what type is it? What's more, are they a cognitive type or a behavioral type? Uh, And I see a lot more behavioral types than cognitive types the premeditated planning out. Those are the ones that scare me. The ones that are premeditated and are puppet mastering other people, you know, yeah, they're clever. (laughs) I think more of the like murder for hire cases that I've seen, not on the job, but like on TV or whatever, it's usually a, like a wife. You know, she's she wants the insurance settlement from you know her husband, you know, taking the big dirt nap, and that was interesting. But like on the job, we had a homicide where this guy was fooling around with this gal, and he's like, "Well, I'm going to go back to my wife." She didn't like that. She came in and killed everybody in the house, including the little baby in the crib. And it's like, holy, it's just, again, you know, it's not TV, it's real. And you don't understand how evil some people actually are. It's a small percentage, thank God. But you just look in these people's faces and you're like, how did this happen? Yeah. So on that uplifting note, JD, who's up next week? <laughs> wow. Um. <laughs> hey, I'm Mr. Happy Guys. Sorry about that. 
Yeah, yeah, Mr. Happy. Um, next week, we've got Greg Hurwitz coming back on. He's the New York Times bestselling author of the Orphan X series. He's also one of the co-presidents of ITW, the International Thriller Writers. His latest novel is called The Last Orphan and releases February 14th. Yeah, sounds fantastic. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, please make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next week and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.